this is Sabrina Marie, host of the Building Abundance Success Series. Our spotlight is on business. I just read an impactful book called Hollywood Godfather, My Life in the Movies and the Mob by Johnny Russo. And you know him from the Academy Award winning Godfather 1 and 2. He has had quite an interesting life in business. Growing up in a polio ward and hitting the streets as a tween with his first business, and then between his tween years and his early 20s, involved in some real interesting business. This is all before the Academy Award winning Godfather, which actually his first role in a movie. To find out more about Johnny's wine lines, as well as some of the other products he's going to launch this year, go to JohnnyRusso.com. Fascinating interview, and it starts right now. Sabrina Marie, thank you for having me, my dear. Oh, I appreciate thank you it. so much. I, I love this impactful book. Um, read it in a day. I couldn't put it down. Uh, I had to wake up because I had to, you know, find out what was next and what was next and what was next. But I wanted you to talk um, about yourself. Where are you from? And uh, tell us a little about uh, a young uh, Johnny growing up. Well, Johnny grew up uh, in a, a very strange way. The first six years probably was like anyone else's first six years of life. And then uh, fortunately and unfortunately, I got polio in 1949 and was quarantined in a state hospital for five years. And, um, you know, you do a lot of growing up when you're quarantined and have nothing else to do 24 hours, seven, before there's no television or anything else. After a while, I got a, a radio, a little transistor radio, which was like my uh, window to, to the other part of the world that I was living in. And um, I wouldn't change a minute of it at all. I mean, fortunately, that... Uh, I left when I was 12, hit the streets, and got a lot of mentors that stayed with me and guided me through the hell I just came from, and here I am today, 76 years what of age. Your what, what, what was your family stru uh, structure like, though? I mean, um, it, well, I'm my, just... my, my, my family structure was uh, obscured by you know the fact that I was quarantined. But how do you tell a seven-year-old kid that your mother and father's not coming to see you? And uh, I, I got there in August. They weren't equipped to handle it. They weren't equipped to handle what was going on. Well, no, they couldn't, they said. I mean, the state had this quarantine. You couldn't come. Mm. They didn't know what the wow. disease was about at the time. Mm -hmm. And uh, we were in isolation, period. But how do you, again, explain that to a seven-year-old? When, you know, you. my life prior to that was very normal. In fact, I was an altar boy and going to church with my grandmother every every day almost. And then uh, all of a sudden I'm in a state hospital about 30 blocks from where I lived. And no one's coming to see me. And now uh, that's deep. That, that, that's first. And they couldn't visit you? Is that, is that what it was? They, oh, yeah. They wouldn't, they wouldn't allow anybody in. The, the nurses uh, that, you know, are on our floor... A lot of them were isolated in the buildings also. It was a very strange time. It was during the Jonas Salt uh, experiment, fortunately, 52-53, mm -hmm. he came up with a, a, a vaccine that worked, and um, the rest is history. 
Now, in that, those formative years between 6 and 12, you said you wouldn't change a minute of it, but your, your mind is developing because I, I know from experience, so when you can't get out with your friends and or you're afraid to make friends because you're losing colleagues, friends, peers. Oh, yeah, I mean, the, the, the rate of survival in those wards were like you know, 12, 12 to 20 percent, you know. But, um, you know, I'm again, I'm blessed. I've been so blessed through my all my life. As you read mm-hmm. Godfather's, uh, Hollywood Godfather, you'll know that what, what I'm talking about. And it's, it's, it's hard, as you say, to capsule 76 years of life in a one-hour interview, but uh, the book says, no. that, unfortunately, it's a great read. And, it is uh, a great read. It is a great read. I, I enjoyed learning some lessons and, and actually trying to see through your eyes, you know, uh, and that's why I stopped with the childhood loss, uh, you know, the second chapter, and I'm thinking, okay, you're developing mind skills. You're learning some people skills. This is before, all before the age of 12. And your your reasoning, your learning, uh, your heightening, and your reasoning happens normally when the other parts of your life are neglected. Well, that was me for sure. <laughs> I mean, there was so much <laughs> to adjust to, and then right. to you know to, to rehabilitate, rehabilitate my whole side of my body to give me the strength to be mobile again. So the first mm-hmm. two or three years, basically, I was just crawling around. Because they encouraged us to get out of bed to build your strength, where I've seen so many kids in that war just give up, and they wouldn't right. get out of bed. And uh, what they would do, once you had some strength, they'd stop giving you a bedpan and stuff like that. So you, uh, you know, had to get out of bed. And fortunately, the ones that wanted to, like myself, we uh, eventually got out of there. And um, so, you know, You're great, again, it's a great, it's great lesson, though, I think. Because I don't, I, as I reflect on it, I don't know what I'd be doing if I didn't have that experience. I'd probably be in the neighborhood yet doing some menial job or get a state or job. Maybe you wouldn't have rehabilitated. Maybe you would not have rehabilitated because many people quit. Oh, I know. So many people do, yeah. I mean, most, most of the people that were with me have passed on now, actually. Mm-hmm. They, they right. never went past, you know, 45, 50 years of age because of that. You know, they, they just, like you said, you know, I, I totally believe in, I mean, I, obviously I believe in God, not that I'm uh, preaching religion, but I think you have to believe in something other than yourself. And uh, with me, it was, you know, myself and God, and I just wouldn't give up. So it's... And- those formative years of not giving up, also you're learning to deal with and look at situations and people. And in reading that chapter, some of the things that you had to maneuver through, um, you know, the fear of abuse, neglect, um, you're developing, believe it or not, people skills, you're developing things that they talk about in psychology and business. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I went through so many uh, avenues, and I'll just tell you, this is what I, I was getting, okay, he's got mind skills and maturity, he's learning about people, he gets out of the place and starts a business. Now, I'm just saying this really fast, because we're going to go over a few things after I say this, and you're meeting people, you're learning people skills, you're traveling, that is interesting, because you're learning culture and etiquette, Right. 
Those oh, are yeah. things that you're learning. You're learning the network. You're learning public relations and negotiations and mediations. And I can go on with all the other shins, you know. I'm like, okay, this is this is something you learn in business school. You should have 10 PhDs by now. <laughs> At least, you know, uh, with some of the things that you have been through. Now, I want to talk about your getting out. What was that like? Did they just turn you loose, or did they say you're well enough to go? Uh, how did you adjust to, you know, not being in a structured environment in quarantine? Well, you know what? Well, the thing was this. I mean, I, I was fantasizing, again, through the, the radio, because I, I never saw uptown New York. I was always down mm-hmm. in Little Italy, and unfortunately... I was able to get the corner bed next to a window, and I saw the Empire State Building for the first time in my life. And I said, someday I'm going to be uptown. And when they let me out, they let me out on 30th Street, the First Avenue. That's where Bellevue was. So, you know, Empire State Building was only four blocks away. And when I came out, I didn't know where I was going because... Uh, I don't want to give it away, but you know what happened in the, in the, mm-hmm. the last couple of days in the ward. And uh, they mm-hmm. put me in uh, isolation, in an, in, the, uh, in an observation in the insane ward up on the seventh mm-hmm. floor. And then right. they just let me out. And um, they called my parents to come and get me. And for, unfortunately, the nurse who was a nurse by then when I got there early on. She was just the candy striper, Dolores Barone, who basically I, I owe my life to. And with that, she brought me down, and they were waiting for my parents. I didn't know whether they were going to come or not, and I just I just told her to take me to the door. They said, I can't do that. And I said, well, I'm going to get up and go. And then she took me out to the door, and then... We had our moment together, and I left. And uh, I hit the streets and never turned back. I, I knew I could go to Magnati's Bakery. was a bakery that was down in our neighborhood as a kid. And uh, I went there, and he helped me. And I was working there at night making bread, which was a part of therapy in itself, just mixing the 50-pound bags of flour and rehabilitating myself. And I, that was at night, fortunately. So when I was done, I could sleep there on the flower bags. And then I'd go out during the day, and uh, that's when I walked into Leo Rabinowitz's stationery store on Delancey Street, and ballpoint pens came out. And I decided, well, I'm going to take the ballpoint pens and go sell them. I was buying them for 15 cents, getting 50 cents or a dollar. And uh, that was my first business. I was 12 and a half years of age. How do you and, feel now? You're out and you're making money and, uh, you know, uh, you're, you're living a far different life than you have the previous five or six years. Totally different. Oh, my God, yeah. But, you know, to get out of there, just the freedom of getting out of there was like everything to me. I didn't care what I needed to do to survive. Fortunately, you know, it was the summer months, so it was warm enough in New York. And then by the time I got into the winters, I was uh, taken in by a guy called Frank Costello, who basically ran New York and then went on to run a lot of other things in the world. And um, 
he gave me the ability to earn money and get a place to sleep. And I wasn't sleeping in the New York Paramount anymore because that was open 24 hours a day on Broadway. And which is ironic because later on in my life, spinning forward to when I'm 25, I get into the biggest motion picture in the world called The Godfather, produced by Paramount. So it's amazing how the parallels just then recycled back to me and still are. And I'm still in business with Viacom and Paramount as we speak. So Beautiful. Uh, in those formative years, um, from 12, 16, 17, um, I'm, uh, when I was reading, I was looking at, um, you know, you, you said you went to work. Um, someone had started to mentor you, and you started to uh, be able to make money and, and have that type of freedom. You're learning what they call emotional intelligence, soft skills. They teach this stuff, you know. But you're actually doing it at that time, at a very young age. Um, actually, that's a good thing because it's lost today. Uh, that's why we have Amazon. Customer service is so bad. <laughs> so, um, in those years, though, uh, what was New York like? Because, you know, you're, you're coming along when you know, movie stars and this and all this stuff is going on. It, you know, New York is a place that doesn't sleep. Tell us about New York during that time. What's um, there now that's still there? And what was it like when you were there that's just not there? How has it changed? Well, the nightlife has definitely changed. I mean, I, I can remember in the 50s and 60s, there was a, a nightclub every other block, the Latin Quarter, the Moulin Rouge, uh, the Copacabana was, you know, Costello's place, and Toot Shores, and 21's still there. I like, every once in a while, I just go there and sit and reminisce, because that was one of my places on 52nd Street. So, I mean, you know, it's, uh, New York is, to me, and I've, I've, I have homes all over the world, fortunately, and people thought I was in real estate. It's just that I have ten mothers to my children, so I bought them homes. But uh, okay. any place I travel, I'm, I'm you know I'm sitting right now in Frank Costello's living room, which is a five bedroom place. The dining room sits sixteen. My wet bar has got an eight stool bar with a dance floor, and I'm just privileged, man. And uh, one day he gave me the keys. And I never left. And then he died in 73. And by that time, you know, I was already in a movie called The Godfather. And then went on to make 46 other movies. And so many other businesses I started at that time. So it's just, uh, you know, and I can't say I did it on my, on my own because of the fact that, you know, I had mentors like Costello and Maya Lansky and Al Malnick, who's still alive. And, they really guided me in, in the right direction, and I was smart enough to capitalize on all, what, all their endeavors, and they included me in it, because I built a tremendous amount of trust over the years. When you were 16, you stopped um, education, or what would be considered formal or uh, needed education. Um, you stopped on your birthday. And Not because I wanted to. <laughs> the truth don't yeah. made me. <laughs> <laughs> I was making a hundred a day already. A hundred dollars a day is a lot of money in you know the late fifties. Back then, 
what did you want to be at, at 16, 17, 18? You know, what, what were your goals? I wanted, I wanted to be Frank Costello. <laughs> oh, really? <laughs> okay. It, well, he was a gentleman. Uh, it was, I mean, he was my father figure. Uh-huh. He always dressed to the nines and uh, tons of money. And uh, as I said, very polite. He knew everybody. Celebrities, gangsters, owned the Copacabana in New York. And that was my life, you know, 15, 16 years of age. I'm hanging around the Copa, especially even during the day when, like, Sinatra's doing a sound check. I'm able to be there because, you know, they knew who I was around. So who had that kind of experience? How big was the mob into the whole entertainment? you got to tell us what that's about, you know, because... Oh, my God, the mob control... Early on, I mean, they controlled all the nightclubs. Wow. And if you weren't connected to the mob, I mean, so many, so many people, I mean, like Sinatra's whole career was based on his relationship with the mob. And his mother, his mother, Dolly, made the first, the first introduction to Sam the Plumber in New Jersey. And then, you know, wow. that, his, his uh, ability to move Frank along was limited because he was in Jersey, and then Tommy Dorsey picked him up, and we all know that story. And then mm. you know, then the mob took over with him and moved him all over the place. But he was always tied to New York and Chicago for the rest of his life until he died. Actually, what about in the music industry? Is it the same there? Of course. Well, the record business. All the jukeboxes, everything was controlled by them. I mean, today, I mean, as you know, music is promoted by promoters and hype and radio. And but those days, I mean, there's some very known major people that uh, became stars because of the jukebox business, and a jukebox company could buy a million records. It made you a million seller in a week if they wanted to. And that's what they did. And, and the mob leveraged that. I mean, and, and, and you know, Seaburg jukebox out of Chicago, they were huge. And, uh, you know, it's... Uh, during that time, I don't think anybody did anything unless the mob wanted you to. Yeah, I'd heard about the roulette records being owned uh, by the mob. And I said, you got to oh, be yeah, kidding me. Yeah, no, all the payola and all of that. And it went on, long on, after, I mean, Lou Wasserman with uh, MCA and, and Clive Davis took the fall for that. And then when Clive came out, they, they gave him a record label because he was a stand-up guy. And that's when he started Arista Records. I mean, I can go on and on and on about the record business. Forget it. <laughs> I mean, wow. I yeah, yeah, I heard about that. I'd heard about that. You know, my, my people were in the, the music business back in the you know, Motown era days. And, uh, well, Motown was a different type of thing because Motown came in really huge, obviously, and uh, controlled the whole black industry. But they still needed the jukeboxes to promote them. Most definitely, most definitely. And um, in terms of nightclubs, it wasn't just nightclubs that they owned in New York. It was all over Chicago. Oh, everywhere. Oh no, the whole. I mean, that whole. Nightclubs are always controlled by mob people. And then they always had the offsprings of those nightclubs at night. They had their, you know, their illegitimate casinos. And 
Shylock business. I mean, the mob is the mob. I mean, that's not happening today. They lost all the respect of that. I mean, today with the electronics and surveillance, the mob business today is, is minuscule to what it was. And, they, and everybody was in cahoots. Wow. Now, that's, this is an education. I would never have known that. Before The Godfather, um, what were you doing the five years before that? Uh, what, what, how did you get into the whole entertainment? I mean, it, it's interesting reading it in the book, but I want you to uh, tell us, what were you doing that five years before? Uh, and what up to Five years the book before that, I... I, I uh, well, after the uh, after the Kennedy assassination, I was gone for 22 months. So mm-hmm. I came back in in 65, 66. I didn't come back to the East Coast. I went to the West Coast. I went to Miami for a while, and I opened a club down there called The Disc on the 79th mm-hmm. Street Causeway. And um, so I got into club businesses because they allowed me to. And, you know, I was had two partners down there, which wound up to be uh, a nightmare because I didn't know they were dealing drugs. And then I went to Vegas, and at that time, Costello and Joe Kennedy, in 1959, they owned the Tropicana Hotel, and Vegas really? was just coming alive. Yeah, and then, uh, they, and then Costello opened the Copa Room and was partners with Nicky Cohen and all them in the Sands Hotel. I stayed 30 years in Vegas, off and on. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, uh, I owned more nightclubs. I mean, my nightclub in the Tropicana Hotel called Tiffany's had Elvis Presley open it for me. Wow. And then my own ego, I always wanted to be an actor, and that's when I read, you know, in 1969, Mario Puzo came out with the Godfather book, and I had someone read it to me because I can't read. I can't read yet. And um, I thought I could play Michael, Sonny, or Carlo. Only to find out, you know, that, uh, that I read some articles that they were going to use unknowns because the book was doing mm-hmm. so well. And so mm-hmm. I, I, I had money and I shot a test and had someone, you know, guide me through that. And I shot a screen, a screen test from Michael, one for Sonny, one for Carlo only to find out from Paramount that they misled me by their articles that they're really using, you know, top-notch actors, professional actors. But then they had the problems with Joe Colombo and the labor unions, which I knew I could fix, and I knew Joe Colombo. And I went to see him in Brooklyn, and at the time Joe was selling a buck a button, these little red, white, and green buttons for your lapel, trying to raise money to finance the uh, you know the anti-American Italian defamation league, and I came up with the idea that you know if we can work this out and stop boycotting a movie being made. And, you know, and what was their what was their beef about that? What was it stereotypes? What what what, is, what were they? Well, he was what? using that platform because his son was just arrested, and oh. he was picketing the FBI building in New York. That's how crazy he was. And, you know, he forgot that he was in organized crime, and that's a secret organization. Not one where you go picketing like you're a legitimate businessman. And he was called in a couple of times by, you know, by the Gambino family and the people that he was part of, New York's five families. And um, 
And the only reason they got the Colombo family is because he let Carlo Gambino know about the plot with the Gallows and the Pavacis that they were going to try to kill him. So when they got rid of Pavacis, he took over the Pavacci family and became Colombo family. But, you know, he's a, a loose cannon. And but fortunately for me, in the next two years, I, you know, got the Godfather movie for myself. And here I am still talking about it. And it, that, that's 48 years ago. So it, it's been a crazy chain of events that I was able to capitalize. What was your favorite sequel? What is your favorite of the three? What is your, what is your favorite one? I like I one and two, best. three. I don't like at all. One and two to mm -hmm. me, I like two better, better than more because the way it tells the story, it sets it up. But um, you know, how could I? You know, to me, I, I've done some great movies. I mean, Any Given Sunday, Family Man, Striptease, uh, Chances. All I mean, I've done so many movies. Fortune, you know, I've done like sixteen of them. I'm, I'm involved as a producer. So you know, that was a whole other career for me. Yeah, also, that, those, those soft skills. There, there you go. You're talking about now. You're into public relations, networking, mediating, acting, artist development, managing, writing, and an author. I mean, I can keep going on. I just I listed almost 21, 20, 25, actually 25 things I got from this. But in getting through the new experience of acting and meeting actual actors, it was um, uh, Marlon Brando who didn't even think that you had the chops to even, or should even be there. Oh, I know. <laughs> you know I, when you think about that, and I mean, that experience in itself, because uh, when, when I've never had a call sheet in my life. That was the first time I got a call sheet. And for the lay people who don't know what it is that's listening, this is where they tell you, you get this the night before, and it tells you what time they're going to pick you up and bring you where and what your your should be prepared for and at the bottom of the call sheet I remember it like it was yesterday they said have no eye contact or do not approach Mr. Brando Whoa. so you know and the whole cast was there and we just did a, a dry rehearsal just reading no acting and Francis Ford Coppola said to all of us we're going to have a lot of food and for the Italians in the room I want you to exaggerate your mannerisms and all your hand gestures because the non-Italians have to become Italian in the next few weeks. People like James Caan, <laughs> who is Jewish, Marlon Brando, Polish. So, uh, and right after the first rehearsal, maybe the first half hour, I'm sitting there and not knowing anybody, nobody knew me. Brando approached me. So I figured, I'm not doing nothing wrong. And he said, you're a big television actor. I said, no. He said, you have a big movie coming out. I said, no, I don't. He said, well, you're not on Broadway. I know everybody on Broadway. I said, you're right again. He said, who'd you study with? I said, study what? What are you talking about? <laughs> and with this, he called Francis over. He said, Francis, this guy's playing my son-in-law. And Francis didn't hire me. The studio was forced to hire me. And he said, I know. He said, well, you know. And he broke down the script, which I never did. Because I didn't care. I was just there for the glory of it. And he said, he marries my daughter. He beats her up. Sets up my son, Sonny, for the Barzini's. Undermines my whole family. 
this guy's got to be a great actor. Now, I just had a big party a few weeks ago, and everybody that I told I was going to be in the movie didn't believe me either. So I'm saying this because of my respect and my honor and my integrity. I'm saying this guy's going to get me fired. No, everybody, everything that everybody said that I'm not going to be in this movie, I wouldn't be able to go back to the neighborhood. So I didn't know protocol. I just, I said, Mr. Copa, I said, go over there a minute. And he left. And everybody in the room who was watching this saying, like, who the hell is this guy? And then I did the next sacrilege. I put my arm around Brando. And I said, come over. I want to talk to you. And he came with me. So as soon as I got him out of earshot, that I want to embarrass the guy, I said, let me just tell you something, Mr. Brando. I've got a lot of respect for you. But let me tell you, if you get me fired, listen to what I'm saying. If you get me fired, I'm going to suck on your heart. You will bleed out here. How dare you try to do this to me? And he stepped back. I didn't know what he was going to do. He said, that was brilliant. That was great acting. You could do this part. He thought I was acting. I was ready to kill them. <laughs> and then he went to Francis. Oh, this guy's good. He's great, man. <laughs> oh, my gosh. I would have loved to have been flying all over that one. <laughs> but you do have to stand up for yourself because you got people out there with attitudes who will really try to cut you I've down. always done it. I still do. I don't back That's down great. with nobody. Yeah, hey, now, did anybody else, who were you actually friends with in that, you know, entourage of people? No. A lot of those people had been actors and for a while. Brando, they, no, they were all Datsbians and all those things. No, I, I, I got to know Brando well. I picked him up every day when he was working. We'd go to Staten Island in my car, not the station wagon, what the Teamsters were driving. And, uh, <laughs> no. You know, he just hung out with me as much as I could and he could. And that's basically the only person in that whole cast I got to know. Because Pacino at the time was nobody, and he was very timid. Jimmy Kahn thought who he was because he just had Brian Piccolo, which was a big hit on television. Mm -hmm. So he basically, as the new guys... I mean, I was always impressed with Richard Conti and Sterling Hayden, John Morley. You know, I watched all their motion pictures. I used to sleep mm -hmm. in the Paramount Theater. It was over 24 hours a day. So I watched mm -hmm. every movie there was. And the aftermath of that movie really doing extremely well, and part two doing well, how are, are you prepared for this whole Hollywood acting mm -hmm. Thing. I mean, you know, you, you've gone from different stages, and so now you've got a major hit on your hands. You're not an actor, but now you are. Um, you know, you know to me, I think well, all of us are actors and actresses. Mm -hmm. To me, our life, when we take on a, a job or an image or whatever, who are we playing? We're portraying somebody else that we idolize in that profession, and that's who you are. I mean, I've never had a problem. I mean, you know, people always said I'm like a chameleon, but uh, I never had a problem with any of this. And I, 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 I don't consider myself an actor. I'm just an, a reactor. Brando taught me that. And, uh, you're you know, a reactor with two hits on your hand, so now you're a movie star. 
<laughs> and yeah, um, <laughs> you know, no, not everybody can do that in like their first movie or two. They they just don't. Well, you know, you know again, it's, 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 if we go back to my my past and and my upbringing, I I had to adjust on a dime, on sometimes every right. day. I didn't know what was happening. So basically, mm-hmm. I think that was the foundation for me to take on anything I wanted to take on. And I and think you, in reading your book, you said that, you know, before the whole Godfather thing, you were um, basically um, not only a courier, but you were public relations. You traveled. You'd been overseas. You had to do various types of people. You were traveling different places, not only in America, but abroad. Oh, yeah. Um, that I mean, I, I traveled... Yeah. yeah, that in itself, you know, and I, I and I wanted to learn, so I listened to people. I learned my table manners. I used to go to Palm Court after my last route at the Plaza Hotel and sit in the corner and watch people bring the soup up to their mouth and not like the Gavones that my family were and all that, where they just slurp in the dish like a dog. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, there was a lot of things, but I want, I had this desire, I don't know why, I liked watching rich people, I used to call them, and uh, I can remember the first time I was up on Fifth Avenue, and I knew it was a Monday, but everybody was dressed as if they were going to church. So I asked the doorman at the Sherry Netherlands, I said, is this today Monday or Sunday? He says, Monday, why? I said, why are these people all dressed like they're going to church? And he laughed at me. He says, this is where they dress every day. I'm so used to people doing nine to five, going to work and schlepping at the piers or menial jobs. And the only time you put your Sunday best on was on Sunday to go to church. So that in itself impressed me. So, I mean, that's why, you know, when I said, I fortunately got sick. I meant it. Unless I would have been that same kid down in this, you know, going to high school maybe, and then because most of the kids couldn't go to school because the parents needed to go to work. You know, mm-hmm. everybody had big families and needed you to do something, especially the men. Right. So it was a different time. In the, you know, talking late 40s, early 50s, Italian-Americans and lower middle class, and that's what you were supposed to do labor jobs they just called you you were donkey men more or less and and we were happy to do the jobs and proud yeah you're mentioning um the whole classism thing you're mentioning a, a hotel that does not exist right to look that up um you know we're, we're so used to chains now the marriott you know Trump Lab, oh, whatever yeah. the heck yeah, these, um, are glor- these are glorified motels for me <laughs> Yeah, and so, you know, you're talking about some of the glamorous hotels. I heard there was a Tudor hotel, there was a, this hotel. Was it Sherry Netherlands? Is what you're talking about? What, yeah, the Sherry Netherlands is still here. It's still, it's still oh, okay. Yeah, some of them are. It's on 59th and 5th Avenue. The Plaza Hotel is still here. I mean, the great hotels, a lot of. Look, look at the Waldorf. Some of my friends just are redoing the Waldorf right now. And they, and the, uh, the, the, uh, the, um, historic society in New York made them keep the first two floors authentic. That's I great. can't wait for it, because that's my whole life. You know, that's when I sat under the clock every morning at 12 o'clock, 11 o'clock, 
in the, in the Waldorf lobby. It's still there. So, I mean, if you want to see the hotels, they're still here. I mean, uh, the Carlisle, I was there Saturday night. Bimbleman's Lounge is still there, man. That's what I love about New York. I mean, the history here is here. Mm-hmm. And my whole life yeah. is here. So, I mean, you know, I've had 76 years of an amazing life. Yeah, I love visiting over the bridge to New York. I'm from Jersey, and, uh, you know, and I've just uh, missed some of the stores like FAO Shorts. And, uh, you know, some of the glamour's gone, you know, with um, uh, the instant gratification of Amazon. You, 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 some of the yeah, it's so funny that you, yeah, you, I, I don't know how old you are, but yeah, FAO Shorts was in glamour. I mean, I like the Warden Taylor that just closed. Saks Fifth Avenue is still here. Bergdorf Goodman's, that's the glamour. You know, mm-hmm. F.A.O. Schwartz was a toy store. <laughs> I know, but I'm a kid at heart. <laughs> I just okay. love to go there. And I was like, wow, I want that, that. And then I can't afford any one of those things. <laughs> but, but, yeah, I understand what you're saying. You know, Saks um, Fifth Avenue and many of the other boutiques, I just I just love it. But I love the toys, toy stores. I'm, I'm, you know, like, they don't oh, exist yeah. anymore, you know. Well, I've, um, I've been but, in every toy store in the world. Imagine I have 11 kids, so. Yeah. I, I, yeah. Are you a kid at heart? I'm not really. I never was a kid. I never could be a kid. So I, I would so never regret. You never liked any of the toys? You never never got to experience, a, you know, any of the... the you know, I, 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 can, I can remember my last Christmas when I was at home. I was like six years old, and I got an apple for Christmas, okay? So that use your imagination. I didn't have wow. toys. Didn't even want toys. We, didn't, yeah. we couldn't afford them. And growing up with polio, I mean, I I know that you said a lot of your your peers are gone. I'm sure you you have to work out and keep yourself in great shape. I did three miles today. Wow. No, I, wow. I don't I don't do I don't go to gyms or anything like that. I walk. I watch what I eat. I try to drink you know a gallon of water a day. I'm just doing the normal things. And the most important thing. Uh, I never forget a doctor told me early on is sleep. Your body builds when you're sleeping and rebuilds when you're sleeping. I still sleep eight to ten hours every day, never less. Hmm. And I think that's what's keeping me healthy. And it's mm-hmm. a good constitution. Mm-hmm. In your ears. As a business person, because that's what you've always been ever since you were a tween. You know, you, yeah. that's what you've you've done. You sold you to people. I'm You're able to move your roles and still doing it. You know. Well, this year alone, yeah. I, by the end of this year, I'll be in eighteen thousand supermarkets with some mm-hmm. products that well, the it's one of the oldest brands in the world called Godfather, and uh, the company I'm involved with owns the brand, I'm the ambassador to it, and I'm on the road. I, I start I start this weekend. I'm opening I'm going personally to all these stores and doing in stores for two or three hours a day for the next year and it's called quarterly owned family products. And it's uh, I own Genko not me, but the company owns Genko olive oil, the original can when they put that mm-hmm. sign up on Mulberry Street. But mm-hmm. I see I see these things and people are making them go to waste. This is a fifty year iconic brand with That's no right. product. 
So I mm. create a product for it. That's smart. That, that's, you know, because, um, and that's one of the reasons I wanted to have you on. I'm, I, I like to talk to game changers. People are able to think out of the box, not do what everybody else is doing. And if you have longevity, um, you, you're able to, to, to see things and uh, to, to build on things. And I find that very, very fascinating. And well, yeah, as, you know, know, be, as you know, and your listeners who are in business, to create right. and build a, a brand from scratch in this in today's world, it would cost you millions and millions of dollars. Of course. Here we have of Don Corleone, the Godfather, one of the most right. iconic images in the world, other than Mickey Mouse, recognized in 42 countries, and nobody did anything with it. <laughs> And, and that's what I, I was going to ask. I was just like, you know, in your, your whole marketing approach, um, I heard that the term Godfather was up in public domain. It was They, were, they weren't using it for anything at all, even after all the movie. Oh, don't say it was in public domain, no. Uh, we, I dealt with, and my company dealt with Viacom Paramount. It was never in public domain. No, that, that, that I tell you, is definitely worth a fortune. We paid right. a lot of money for the rights to it. It's, okay. Uh, but they, they were they were selling T-shirts and mugs. You know, Paramount, CBS, really weren't that That's really into merchandising. And um, T-shirts you know, and mugs. Well, Godfather logos on them. You believe it? That? That's what they were licensing stuff oh, for. Oh, you know. That makes sense. Well, you know, it, like I said, you know, you're thinking outside the box and actually trying to build on that brand, and it, I have no doubt it's going to be successful. I want to ask you though, you um, also and not a, only an actor, but you're a writer, and also you've, you've done some managing and other things throughout, you know, the last fifty years. Right. Um, in terms of owning clubs and whatnot. And dealing with people throughout the decades, I'm asking you this because customer service these days is pretty frightening. <laughs> I, I, yeah, I mean, people don't like to too. deal with other people, you know. Well, that's why the mail order business and, and soliciting and nobody talks to anybody. Everybody's on a computer, and mm-hmm. they don't have they they really don't have personal skills. And I think we're we're getting forced in the era, and especially the new millennium. I mean, that's why you're going to see somebody brick and mortar stores close. Everybody wants it now, and they want to deliver the next day. And unless you're privileged of walking around New York and going to a store, that's almost impossible. So I mean, Amazon and all these, you know, I mean, even even our animals, Chewy. I mean. We get chewy here three or four times a month, where I know I used to go pick up 50-pound bags of, of litter and cat food and stuff like that. Now it's delivered to you. I mean, everything is so convenient. Mm-hmm. And that's why, I mean, I see families sitting down in restaurants, and everybody's on a tablet. They're not even talking to themselves. <laughs> I mean, it's uh, crazy. No, and- yeah, I was going to ask you that. Had you not, and I was thinking about just what you're saying right now, 
had he not gone and done the negotiating where the Godfather was concerned and actually shown up, he probably wouldn't have even gotten anything there done. First of all, anything done, and you wouldn't have been in the movie. If you had not been able to negotiate, mediate, you know, if you were doing any of that, I know. you wouldn't have been there. Uh, you had to actually physically look somebody in the eye and say, look, you know, this is going to happen. Well, you know, that's what's so scary, I think, for the for the future generation. I think they're going to d- demolish the middle and lower middle class because either you're going to be so well-educated or be into a family business, or you're going to be a laborer because they're, they're, nobody has people skills anymore. I mean, well, when, when, when we call, I mean, if, you, if your son breaks... Even on a guarantee and you call the 800 number, you're being connected to some Indian in India. And, and he's trying to talk with a New York accent. I laugh at them. They don't even know what you're talking about. It's, you know, it's, uh, I mean, thank God I'm as old as I am. I wouldn't want to be, like my, my, my last, I have nine grandsons also. So I got 18 boys and two daughters. But I don't know wow. what kind of life these kids are going to be in in 10 years from now, 15 years from now, when they're young men. That's why I'm doing as much as I can to raise money and, and awareness, basically. But you have to go back to what the, the norm. Like any of, my, any of the kids in my, in my family come to my house, you better put your tabloid down because you ain't coming again. And I've done it. Right. I'm, I'm not here. And you got to have respect, first of all. And without respect, you don't have respect for yourself either. You're done. And that's what's going on. I'm bringing that up. And and you're you're mentioning something really interesting. Um, College education and education, I'm not putting anything down. But guess what? 90% of the people who get them, unless you're in a specialized field, won't be able to pay back all those student loans. And you're not going to find a job in you know, literary, you know, theater or whatever, you know, whatever glorified topic you're studying, you know, know poetry. It's crazy. <laughs> it's a, I mean, it's poetry a, feng shui or whatever. I'm like, what do you get? What kind of job do you get with that? You know, history. You can't even get anything with a history minor or major. You know, I'm not so. I mean, and, and, and the more, and the, you know, that's why I, I, I'm not into politics at all. But you know, I, I, my hat's off to foreigners. Because they come here, they excel, they're hungry, Mm -hmm. they're good, they work at it. All our kids, even my own, they're all spoiled. What are you going to give me next? And I'm not that guy. I give them nothing. I'll give you a roof over your head, education and food. Go out and do something, man. Because you're going to wake up. Very disappointed. You gave your kids more than my my folks gave me. They told, well, because I grew up in the hospitals, what does she need to go to school for? What I got scholarships. Exactly. But I'm glad for it. Yeah. I'm glad for it yeah. because I had to, you know, stand up for myself. And, and, well, see, and they gave you something like that I, I got and you got. It's something that, unbeknownst to them, they gave it to us. Because we wanted to better ourselves and we went and did it. You have to. Yeah, these kids go commit. These kids commit suicide. (laughs) I know. I know. I know. I I was teased, but I just I never thought they were that important enough to kill myself. (laughs) Oh, me either. I mean, I'd be the last person to kill. You know, I ain't killing myself. 
But yeah, no, I mean, you know, the, the, the values are so warped, and I, I mean, I see it around me constantly. I go visit people in there. Their kids don't even come out and say hello to you when you come to the house. They stay locked up in their bedrooms on their tablet. And I say to them, I thought you had kids. Oh, they're here. Oh, they're here. They're in the room. Well, I got one better. I know, I know people. I go, I go to stores. I'm getting ready to check out. And the person, um, you know, that's checking me out maybe five years around my age, maybe, and they're looking at me like, well, what the, what the hell are you doing here? I'm going to check out. I want to check these groceries. That's what I want to do. You know, you have to explain to them. It's, it's like, you know, you're doing them a favor. They feel they're doing you a favor by actually being there. I know. It's, it's scary. It's scary. It's like, oh, don't you yeah. want your job, you know? But, um, yeah, you, they don't have the, the, the people skills. I'd much rather buy online. And but that is so needed for what you have done. You you know not maybe I'm sure there've been days when people you just didn't like, and maybe you wanted to tell them a few things, <laughs> but you didn't. You know, to me, you know, you know what? I I I'm, I try to avoid people. I really do because I don't like most people, and I don't like what they represent today. And so mm-hmm. what? You know, I can, I could count my friends on one hand, not two hands, one. <laughs> mm-hmm. And I don't really, I, I associate with a lot of people because I have to. And I, mm-hmm. I capitalize on what I learn from people all the time. And that's the other thing. I love being around people who are better than me because I'm getting educated Amen. by them. Yeah. Amen. I, I strive for that every every day. I want at least a qu- every quarter, I'm like, i got to go have more vertical friendships and, you know, mentors and whatnot so I can get to the next level. And it's so important. Now, I, one of the things in parting, I wanted to ask you, each and every step, um, even reading the book and just hearing you talk, you've dealt with people who are at a higher level than you. Always. I've, I've heard that. And um, sometimes that's just not easy to do. What would you tell uh, anybody and or entrepreneur who... Maybe you're stuck. What would you do to get out of that rut? Well, first of all, if he's an entrepreneur, understand what your product is. Understand if there's a need for the product. And some people are dreamers, and they, mm-hmm. they become entrepreneurs, and they go borrow money if they can do that even. And they're trying to develop something that there's no, no need for. So, I mean, you're, you've, you've created an obstacle not a career, <laughs> and you're not going to go forward. I mean, I think you really have to sit back and digest what you want to do. Is there a need for it? And then find the people that really know how to help you get there. I've always relied on people, and I've always been honest with people. I think if you're honest with people and you have a good idea, they're going to listen to you, and they'll help you. And the good news, mm-hmm. if you don't have a good idea, why not find out right now? It's not going to work now. Don't waste your time. But don't let it be where it destroys you. Put your ego aside, digest it, and then maybe take that same situation, whatever it may be, a product or an idea, talk to somebody else on a higher level than you. Get their opinions. People, successful people, will help you. I've, I mean, I've been helped by everybody in the world. I mean, I can, I mean, I can name some monster people. 
And I just approached them very honestly. And, and they helped me. Arrogant people like Sinatra. I asked him to help me sing. He did. Brando taught me how to act. It was crazy, you know. John Kluge. I mean, billionaires as a kid. I, I sat with them. Maya Lansky. I used to sit with him on a park bench for hours and just listen to his philosophy. Like, But that's how you're going to learn. You don't need an education. You need an education in just day-to-day life. And it's, it's there for your liking. Go sit on a park bench in a good neighborhood. Talk to an old man with a dog. He's probably a gazillionaire and give you great advice. <laughs> <laughs> so you um, are an intellectual property owner. You are an entrepreneur, a brand ambassador. I've named all these different things, and they, they teach these in the psychology and business, you know. So, and you lived this stuff. You didn't live the stuff and made millions and millions of dollars. That's what's even better. <laughs> Amen. See, you know, and, and I'm glad you brought that out. Uh, like I say, traditional education says you need all these D's, you know, X, Y, Z, and B, U, T's behind your name. And I'm just like, well, you know, a lot of people are also hundreds of thousands of dollars in debt, and they will never pay that back in their life. So aware of it. You know, in the last few years, I've been giving out through through different uh, organizations, the AAIB and different places like that. And what, what my goal is in the last sentence in my book is, yes, you can, because I yeah. want to motivate people. I, the, I don't care what the color of your skin is, what your social background is, economic background even. Do something. Get an idea. Believe in yourself and try it. You'll be amazed. I mean, I've I've worn about ten different hats in ten different professions and excelled. And, and if I could do it, anybody could do it. Yeah, and you, you didn't have just the dream and didn't talk about it like many people. They talk about their their dream and their desires, and five years later, they're still talking about that. That you acted. I have I have friends that come to me and say, "I don't know how you did it. I'm still trying to do that." And I said, "Why? Why are you still trying? Obviously, it didn't work." 20 years ago it's not going to work now change your profession man. <laughs> yeah yeah yeah. yeah. And you're a 9 to 5 just you know mm-hmm. it's, and, and, and and the majority of them are going to be into automation soon so you're not going to have that job either so see you later I'd find a profession Amen. right yeah. away Mention your brands now. You said you're going to be in the grocery stores and, and um, all over the place. And uh, yeah, we uh, own, we, own, we own a company that's called Cordelion Fine Family Selections of Italian Foods. We tried to soften the Don Cordelion thing because the Don stuff is that image, but we went with the Cordelion family. So uh, we launched nine, uh, seven products right now. We have four. Sauces that are amazing. I mean, I even we capitalized on Clemenza's meat sauce in the movie. See, what's good about what we have? We have 10 million daily followers on you know Facebook and Instagram under the Godfather. It's an international brand. Now we have a product to sell through it. We have Genko olive oil. Anybody that saw that movie knows with Genko olive oil. So even if we just sold a signature, you know, uh, trophy can, we're going to sell 10 million cans. 
the good news is the product is great, not good, great. We 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 sourced everything, and with I'm, I'm partners with Greco and Sons. Again, why they go with Greco and Sons? They already do ten, I mean six billion a year in Italian groceries. They're my importer exporter. See, I I have the idea, but I collected the people that know how to put it in motion. Right. And and that's that's what anybody listening to your show, that's what you want to do. Mm-hmm. You want to pick, don't own 100% of nothing. I'd rather own 20% of something and have five companies, and now you still have 100% of something. Amen. And diversify. <laughs> so exciting. Uh, do you have another book in you? I was reading your book. I like, I know you left some stuff out. You had to have left some stuff out. Oh, I, no, I, we I, have, I, I'm doing another book. In fact, I, I started writing again with Patrick. I love Patrick Picciarelli who co-wrote this with me. And um, yeah, we have uh, something that's really interesting. Uh, again, with uh, not again, but the government is in everybody's mind right now. But I was a part of uh, the government in the late 50s, early 60s, when they tried to infiltrate the gaming business through a gentleman called Howard Hughes. And it's, mm. gonna be, yeah, it's, it's, it's all about... It's about the movie business and gaming in Las Vegas in the 50s and 60s, which nobody knows the story. It's an amazing story. And I would just have to be a part of it. I'm going to look forward to that. And also you signing this book of mine. Where are you going to be? Uh, you know, where your fans can, you know, actually hear you and, and uh, hear your music and see what else oh, you're yeah, doing. Oh, yeah, I'm doing everything. I mean, uh, if you go on my social Canada calendar, I'm, I'm in... I'll be in every state by this by October, November. So come by. Where, where, where's your base? Oh, my my base is everywhere. I've got international an international audience everywhere. I've got a lot of people in Barcelona. I got a lot of people in the United Kingdom and Canada. I got a lot of people in Brazil. I got people all over the world that listen. And oh, I'm great. really blessed bless to, to have a great well, you know, I have a podcast now too. Oh, beautiful. And we're in Hollywood Godfather podcast. We put up a new show every Wednesday night, and we're really mm-hmm. building fast. And uh, so it's it's interesting. On one show alone, I'm just under five hundred thousand hits. Wow, which is pretty There's good. So much to talk about. I invite you back anytime. There's so much oh, more please, I want to ask. I really appreciate and, it. Um, Anytime you want to come back, and of course, we're going to keep up with what you're doing on your website. Thank you, thank you, thank you so much for being with us. No, thank you. I really appreciate it. And your audience, God bless you. Thank you.